Today's podcast is brought to you by N.K. Jemison's The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, out now for Morbid. You can read an excerpt from this debut novel at www.nkjemison.com. More about that at the end of the episode. Podcastle, episode number 94, for March 9th, 2010, A Light in Troy, by Sarah Monette. Hello, this is Rachel Swirsky. It's my first intro back, or is it? We record pretty far in advance, so maybe you've already heard another intro from me. But this is the first one that I'm recording since taking my leave. You may be wondering how I'm enjoying my fabulous post-podcastle life. Well, Anna and Dave lent me one of the dragons, and I'm zooming around the European capitals, touring palaces and museums. Some people tried to tell me I couldn't go into the Uffizi Gallery because it was closed, and I said, Hey, do you want me to tell Fido to breathe fire on you? So they let me in. They even offered to let me keep Botticelli's Birth of Venus as a parting gift. Well, actually, I'm still hanging around Bakersfield. I'm writing a bunch. I just went over proofs for Through the Drowsy Dark, my volume of poetry and short stories that's coming out from Aqueduct Press in May. I also just got news that my novelette, A Memory of Wind from Tor.com, has been nominated for the Nebula Award, so I'm pretty thrilled about that. On the home front, Mike and I raised a litter of feral kittens, half of which we were able to tame and adopt out. The other half are living in our backyard and eating our cat food, for which privilege they reward us with hatred, hissing, and claws. You know, like teenagers. Ba-da-bum. Shame. Today's story is Sarah Monette's A Light in Troy. Sarah Monette has a PhD in English literature and is a full-time writer of fantasy, science fiction, and horror. You can find out more about her work at her website, sarahmonette.com. A Light in Troy first appeared in Clark's World magazine, but I found it in Best New Romantic Fantasy 2, edited by Paula Garan, which is a very good collection, by the way, even if you're not a fan of romance as a distinct genre, which, as it happens, I'm not. A Light of Troy is read for us by Anne Leckie, in addition to being Podcastle's able associate editor, Anne has worked as a waitress, a receptionist, a rodman on a land surveying crew, and as a recording engineer. Her science fiction and fantasy short stories have appeared in Strange Horizons, Subterranean Magazine, and Realms of Fantasy. She lives in St. Louis, Missouri with her husband, children, and cats. This episode was brought to you by N.K. Jemison's Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, now out from Orbit Press. You can read an excerpt from this debut novel at nkjemison.com. I reviewed this knockout first novel at Jeff Vandermeer's blog, Ecstatic Days. If you want to read my review, you can turn up the link by googling Rachel Swirsky, 100,000 Kingdoms. I fell in love with the book's intelligent story, beautiful prose, and expansive world building. Stay tuned at the end of this episode for an audio trailer from the author. Enjoy today's story! A Light in Troy by Sarah Manette She went down to the beach in the early mornings to walk among the cruel black rocks and stare out at the waves. Every morning she teased herself with wondering if this would be the day she left her grief behind her on the rocky beach and walked out into the sea to rejoin her husband, her sisters, her child. And every morning she turned away and climbed the steep and narrow stairs back to the fortress. She did not know if she was hero or coward, but she did not walk out into the cold gray waves to die. 
She turned away the tenth morning or the hundredth and saw the child, a naked, filthy, spider-like creature, more animal than child. It recoiled from her, snarling like a dog. She took a step back in instinctive terror. It saw its chance and fled, a desperate, headlong scrabble, more on forelegs than on two. As it plunged past her, she had a clear, fleeting glimpse of its genitals, a boy. He might have been the same age as her dead son would have been. It was hard to tell. Shaken, she climbed the stairs slowly, pausing often to look back, but there was no sign of the child. Since she was literate, she had been put to work in the fortress's library. It was undemanding work, and she did not hate it. It gave her something to do to fill the weary hours of daylight. When she had been brought to the fortress, she had expected to be ill-treated, a prisoner, a slave. But in truth, she was mostly ignored. The fortress's masters had younger, prettier girls to take to bed. The women, cool and distant and beautiful as she had once been herself, were not interested in a ragged woman with haunted, half-crazed eyes. The librarian, a middle-aged man already gone blind over his codices and scrolls, valued her for her voice. But he was the only person she had to talk to, and she blurted as she came into the library, "'I saw a child.' "'Beg pardon?' "'On the beach this morning, I saw a child.' "'Oh,' said the librarian, "'I thought we'd killed them all.' "'Them,' she said rather faintly. "'You didn't imagine your people were the first to be conquered, did you? "'Or that we could have built this fortress "'which has been here for thousands of years?' "'She had never thought about it. "'You really are like Locust,' she said, and then winced. "'Merely because he did not treat her like a slave "'did not mean she wasn't one.' But the librarian just smiled, a slight, bitter quirk of the lips. Your people named us well. We conquered this country, oh, six or seven years ago. I could still see. The defenders of this fortress resisted us long after the rest of the country had surrendered. They killed a great many soldiers and angered the generals. You are lucky your people did not do the same. Yes, she said with bitterness of her own, lucky. Lucky to have her husband butchered like a hog. Lucky to have her only child killed before her eyes. Lucky to be mocked, degraded, raped. Lucky to be alive, the librarian said, as if he could hear her thoughts. Except for this child you say you saw, not one inhabitant of this fortress survived, and they did not die quickly. He turned away from her as if he did not want her to be able to see his face. She said with quick horror, You won't tell anyone? It's only a child, a... "'More like a wild animal, not a threat. Please.' "'He said, still turned toward the window as if he could look out at the sea. "'I am not the man I was then, and no one else will care. "'We are not a people who have much interest in the past, even our own. "'And yet you are a librarian.' "'The world is different in darkness,' he said, "'and then harshly, briskly asked her to get out the catalogue and start work. "'Some days later,' "'Whether three or thirty, she asked shyly, "'Does the library have any information on wild children?' "'We can look,' said the librarian. "'There should at least be an entry or two in the encyclopedias.' "'There were, and she read avidly, aloud because the librarian asked her to, "'about children raised by wolves, children raised by bears. "'And when she was done, he said, "'Did you find what you were looking for?' "'No, not really.' I think he lives with the dog pack in the caves under the fortress, so it makes sense that he growls like a dog and runs like a dog, but it doesn't tell me anything about how to save him, how to love him, 
She hadn't meant to say it. The librarian listened too well. Do you think he wishes for your love? No, but he keeps coming back, and... and I must love someone. Must you? What else do I have? I don't know, he said, and they did not speak again that day. She did not attempt to touch the child. He never came within ten feet of her anyway, the distance between them as impassable as the cold gray sea. But he was always there when she came down the stairs in the morning, and when she started coming down in the evenings as well, he came pattering out from wherever he spent his time to crouch on a rock and watch her, head cocked to one side, pale eyes bright, interested. Sometimes one or two of the dogs he lived with would come as well, long-legged, heavy-chested dogs that she imagined had been hunting dogs before the fortress fell to the locusts. Her husband had had dogs like that. The encyclopedias had told her that he would not know how to speak, and in any event she did not know what language the people of this country had spoken before their world ended as hers had in fire and death. The child was an apt mimic, though, and much quicker-minded than she had expected. They worked out a crude sign language before many weeks had passed, simple things like food, for she brought him what she could, and no, which he used when he thought she might venture too close, and I have to go now, and it was ridiculous of her to imagine that he seemed saddened when she made that sign, and even more ridiculous of her to be pleased." She worried that her visits might draw the fortress's attention to him, for whatever the librarian said, she was not convinced the locusts would not kill the child simply because they could, but she asked him regularly if other people came down to the beach, and he always answered no. She wasn't sure if he understood what she was asking, and the question was really more of an apotropaic ritual. It gave her comfort, even though she suspected it was meaningless. Until the day when he answered, yes. The shock made her head swim, and she sat down hard and not gracefully on a lump of protruding rock. She had no way of asking him who had come or what they had done, and in a hard, clear flash of bitterness, she thought how stupid of her it was to pretend this child could in any way replace her dead son. But he was all she had, and he was watching her closely. His face never showed any emotion except when he snarled with fear or anger, so she did not know what he felt, if anything at all. She asked, All right? Yes, the child signed, but he was still watching her as if he wanted her to show him what he ought to do. She signed, All right, more emphatically than she felt it. But he seemed to be satisfied, for he turned away and began playing a game of catch-me with the two dogs who had accompanied him that morning. She sat and watched, trying to convince herself that this was not an auspice of doom, that other people in the fortress could come down to the beach without any purpose more sinister than taking a walk. Except that they didn't. The locusts were not a seafaring people, except in the necessity of finding new countries to conquer. They were not interested in the water and the wind and the harsh smell of salt. In all the time she had been in the fortress, she had never found any evidence that anyone except herself used the stairs to the beach. She was trying hard not to remember the day her husband had said, casually, A messenger came from the lighthouse today, says there's strangers landing on the long beach. Little things. Little things led up to disaster. She was afraid, and she climbed the stairs back to the fortress like a woman moving through a nightmare. Her lowering anxiety distracted her so much that she asked the librarian, forgetting that he was the last person in the fortress likely to know, who else goes down to the beach? The silence was just long enough for her to curse herself as an idiot before he said, That was 
I. You? Yes. Why? What on earth possessed you? His head was turned toward the window again. He said, You spend so much time there. At first, she did not even understand what he was saying, could make no sense of it. She said hastily to fill the gap, You're lucky you didn't break your neck. I won't do it again if you don't want. She couldn't help laughing. You forget which of us is the slave and which the master. What makes you think I can forget that? Any more than I can forget that I will never see your face. I... I don't... I'm sorry, he said, his voice weary, although his posture was as poker straight as ever. I won't bother you about it again. I didn't mean to tell you. She said, astonished, I don't mind. And then they both, in unspoken, embarrassed agreement, plunged hastily into the minutiae of their work. But that evening, as she sat on her rock beside the sea, she heard slow, careful footsteps descending the stairs behind her. Come, said the child from his rock eight feet away. Friend, she said, a word they'd had some trouble with, but she thought he understood, even if she suspected that what he meant by it was pack member, and called out, There's room on my rock for two. Friend, the child repeated, his hands moving slowly. No hurt, she said, and wondered if she meant that the librarian would not hurt the child, or that the child should not hurt the librarian. Yes, he said, and then eagerly, rock. What are you doing this evening? The librarian's voice said behind her. Teaching him to skip stones. She flung another one, a strong snap of the wrist. Five skips and it sank. The child bounced in a way she thought meant happiness. He threw a stone, but he hadn't gotten the wrist movement right, and it simply dropped into the water. Again, he said, imperious as the child of kings. She threw another stone. Four skips. The librarian sat down beside her carefully, slowly. She said... What is the sea like in darkness? Much more vast than I remember it being when I had my sight. It would do the generals good to be blind. Blindness won't teach them anything. They have never wanted to see in the first place. You think that's what makes the difference? We learn by wanting, she said. We learn by grieving. Shyly, the librarian's hand found hers. The child threw a stone. It skipped seven times before it sank. And welcome back. Ah, Troy. We're brought to you again today by N.K. Jemisin's The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, her debut novel from Orbit Books. N.K. Jemisin's one of our very own escape artists. You've heard her stories here and over at Escape Pod. And like Podcastle's very own Rachel Swarsky, she's just been nominated for a Nebula. Congratulations to both of you, from all of us here at Podcastle. Personally, I find N.K. Jemison's writing to be lovely, and I can't wait to read this one. And yes, it is now on my bookshelf. What's it all about? I'm glad you asked. Look, a book trailer. Debut author N.K. Jemison comes a stunning epic fantasy novel of intrigue, betrayal, and dark beauty. 
the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms is provocative and exciting, says author Kate Elliott. An extraordinary world, says author Carol Berg. Tell me why you killed my mother. The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, out February 25th from Orbit Books. All I can say is I hope it looks as good on your bookshelf as it does on mine. Okay, let's get into some feedback for Podcastle episode 86, Ben Francisco's Tio Gilberto and the 27 Ghosts, a story about love, heartbreak, and loss in San Francisco. Ridiculous Lee said I'd slay any dragon, fight any ogre, summon any demon, or go on any perilous journey sooner than I'd put myself at risk again and have to go through the horrible anxiety of waiting for my doctor to give me a clean bill of health. Just listen to your tío, chicos. Always wear a parachute. But you know what made me really happy about feedback for this episode? We had a bunch of people log on to the forums at forum.escapeartist.net for the very first time to comment on it. For example, Munin81 said, Between this story and the threnody of Johnny Taruko, I'm feeling very, very happy. It seems like in the geek sci-fi community, there's a deep void of homosexual content in people. It warms my heart to hear fiction stories that I can relate to. Stories that not only involve gay characters, but feature them. This story reminds me of my youth in so many ways. It seems like those rash, carefree, and idiotic 18 to 22 years were brilliantly captured in this story. I recall a similar clinic visit myself. Beads of sweat on my brow while waiting to hear my fate. I almost felt those same feelings again as I was waiting with James in the clinic. I was upset at first that we didn't get an answer, but the not knowing actually drove the point home more. Finally, author Ben Francisco stopped by the forum to talk about the inspiration for the story and answer questions. Always good times when the featured story's author stops by, so we thank you for that, Ben. That's all we have for this week, my friends. Thanks for letting us share another story with you. Now, let me hold out my own upturned top hat to you all with my disembodied voice and remind you that we at Podcasts rely on your donations to keep us afloat. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and donating. All your money goes to paying our authors and covering our costs so we can keep doing what we're doing. Thank you. We'll be back next week with a tale from Vilar Kaftan. What I believe is our very first unicorn story, although probably the question you're asking yourself right now is whether or not there will be any virgins. Until then, toss a couple of stones in the water for us. White or black, it doesn't matter. Sorry, inside joke. We'll see you all next week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Washington Irving said, There's a sacredness in tears. They are not the mark of weakness, but of power. They speak more eloquently than ten thousand tongues. They are the messengers of overwhelming grief and unspeakable love.